0: Dear fellow redeemed, it's been said that Psalm 22 is one of the most important psalms in the whole Bible. Psalm 22 is most cited and referred to in the New Testament out of all other psalms. Psalm 22 gives us an incredible picture of the Messiah's suffering that's unparalleled in the Old Testament outside of Isaiah chapter 53 quite often connect the most famous words of this psalm to Good Friday. Jesus' words from the cross that he spoke in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This Good Friday evening, let us take up this psalm. Let us consider the theme, Forsaken for You. Mel Gibson's 2004 blockbuster, Passion of the Christ, was an R-rated movie, and I was quite surprised by that. I remember years ago when I saw it for the first time, quite surprised that a movie about the Bible, a movie that desired to stay true to what the Scriptures said, would receive such a rating, the same rating as movies filled with incredible filth, but that movie received that rating because of the the gore and violence that was in it. I often wondered, as I saw that movie, did it really occur in the way that that director portrayed it? Was it really as gory and bloody as it was shown on the screen? Don't get me wrong, from what we read in scripture, it certainly sounded terrible, but I wonder if maybe Mel Gibson had outdone himself, maybe had gone beyond his artistic license. I wondered why. Why did he make that movie so bloody and so gory? I hope that it wasn't just to get the R rating to attract more people's interest to come and see, but I hope it was to really show to us the extent of the suffering of our Savior, the extent of which can't fully be seen by our eyes and perceived by our senses. Psalm twenty-two lays before us the picture of one suffering on a cross. It's quite incredible when you think about this fact that this psalm was written some five hundred years before crucifixion was even invented as a means of execution. Yet, for us as Christians, we see more than merely the, the crucifixion of an individual of a man. We see the crucifixion of the Messiah. Christ, our Savior. It's like Mel Gibson's movie, Psalm 22, relays for us much of the physical suffering of the Messiah. And he speaks from the cross. Like water I am poured out, all my bones are pulled apart. And We can see it pictured in our own minds there. Perhaps his arms being pulled out of their socket as he stretched out upon the cross to be nailed to that tree. He goes on, my strength is dried up like broken pottery and my tongue is stuck to the roof of my mouth. It's been said concerning those that die in crucifixion, that they die not because of loss of blood, but because of asphyxiation most often. It's because they can't breathe. You see, when you're hanging like this from your hands, it is very difficult because of the weight of your body to get air into your lungs, and so you need to pull yourself up, push up on your feet or pull up on your hands to gain each breath. You can imagine that's extremely tiring over the course of hours, if not days, the time that it would take an individual to normally die from crucifixion. We see certainly of this one who's crucified that his strength is dried up and he is tired. His tongue is stuck to the roof of his mouth. We see our Savior there, don't we? As he cries out from the cross, I thirst. Then, of course, there is the imagery they pierced my hands and my feet. You can imagine those nails being driven into his wrists, most likely, and then into his feet to pin him to that torture tree. To ensure that he stays there and dies. It's terrible to imagine that anyone would have to endure any such things. But most of this suffering that I just imagine that we just imagined here before us, as we heard in our text, is suffering that any victim of crucifixion, any criminal that's given this punishment, must endure, including those on Jesus right and on his left. But Jesus' suffering was greater even than these things. Not only was there all of that physical agony and pain, but even psychological suffering. You I mean, think about the crowd that was there that morning that were crying out, Crucify! Crucify him! They were now gathered at the foot of the cross. And again, the suffering servant speaks, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They sneer, they shake their heads. They say, trust in the Lord, let the Lord deliver him. Let him rescue him if he delights in him. If the physical pain hadn't been enough, now he's surrounded by all of these mockers who jeer and scorn. You can picture again Christ on the cross, surrounded by those who call out to him, If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. And he saved others, but he can't save himself. Again, the suffering one describes the scene. Enemies open their mouths wide against me like a lion that tears its prey and roars. A band of evil men has encircled me. They stare and gloat over me. Think of the Roman soldiers, or of the Jewish leaders, who now stare and gaze on and gloat because they have king killed the king of the Jews. The religious leaders have finally succeeded in doing away with that prophet Jesus of Nazareth. They're all turned against him. But at this point, all of these things can easily be depicted in a movie, can't they? It can be shown on the screen the way in which he suffers physically and even psychologically, all that he endures. But his suffering is even greater than these things, as the condemned speaks, even from the very first word of our psalm, the first verse My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this verse really reveals the worst of his suffering. That he has been forsaken there by God. To be forsaken is truly a terrible thing. In World War II, there was an aircraft carrier out in the middle of the ocean, and they sent six fighter planes out to go and spy out and see if there were any submarines in the surrounding area region. And so the fighter jets went out to go and investigate. But their mission was long and the day drew nigh and soon it was completely dark. And so they tried to return back to that aircraft carrier, but now the captain aboard the ship was worried and concerned about an enemy nearby and knew that he could not turn on any lights on the ship lest he give away his location. And so the men in that, those aircraft radioed in, please turn on the lights for us so we can see the runway But again, the radio man called back, we cannot. They called again, please, just one light, that's all we need. Soon their pleas were too much, and the radio man decided to simply switch off the radio and communication. All six fighter pilots were forced to crash their planes into the ocean. Can you imagine what it would be like to be forsaken? friends, to be abandoned by those who were your fellow countrymen, like those pilots were, how much more terrible to be forsaken by God, to be forsaken by the one in which we live and move and have our being, the one who provides so much for us and for our world, who keeps it going and in place, even ourselves, to have this God Turn his back on us. It's often been said that to experience being abandoned by God is to be one that experiences hell, to be separated from God. Really, that's what Jesus felt on the cross separation from the Heavenly Father. He not only turned his back on him, but considered him his enemy poured out his wrath and punishment upon him. So much so as he suffers there, he suffers not just physically, not just psychologically, but he suffers even hell itself. He suffers judgment, the righteous wrath of God against sin, poured out upon this one on the cross. We ask the question, why? Why, why? Why all of this suffering? Why all this torment and pain? We ask it in our own lives as we experience suffering too. As we lose a loved one. As we experience setbacks in our own lives. As there's conflict in our families. As there's health concerns. Maybe great concerns. Especially even concerning this coronavirus in our world now. So much suffering all around us, people getting sick, people dying. We ourselves, torn out of our normal lives, not able to go to school or go to work as we are used to. So much suffering, so much pain. Why, God? Why is all of this happening? So often God doesn't tell us. We do know that God at times can use tragedy and suffering as punishment. The way he did in the great flood to wipe out so many people who had transgressed his commandments. The way he did concerning Sodom and Gomorrah, raining down that fire and brimstone upon that city. Not us, Lord. We're not objects of your wrath. We are your faithful children, your people, dear Lord. Why? We certainly trust God and his word that he works all things together for the good of those who love him. For those who are called according to his purpose. But how does this suffering we're enduring make any sense? God reveals to us, sometimes he uses suffering to test our faith as he did Job. Or sometimes he can even permit suffering as chastisement. To lead us to repentance, to trust in him. But again, we don't know. The reason so often for the sufferings that we endure and go through in this life, in this world. Of course, there is the big why for this evening. Concerning Christ, as he again cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Didn't he know? Wasn't he the very Son of God? Didn't he know all things? Or could he not know why this was happening? Was it possibly that in his humility, this was hidden from him, just as he revealed in Holy Scripture that the end of the world was a date unknown to him, but only known to the Father? Or could it be that he simply asked this as a rhetorical question to emphasize the grief and sorrow that he's enduring? Or could it be something else? We don't know but we do know the answer to why why this took place why this one suffered in such a horrendous way on the cross Isaiah reveals it in his 53rd chapter it was because of our rebellion that he was pierced he was crushed for the guilt our sins deserved the punishment that brought us peace was upon him It was the Lord's will to crush him and to allow him to suffer because God made his life a guilt offering. It was God's will to crush him is what the scriptures say. To make his life a guilt offering for us. Now there are many in our world today that reject this notion that say it cannot possibly be that God the Father is permitting this to happen, wanting this to happen, to even bring this horrific wrath and punishment upon His Son. Wouldn't you call that divine child abuse for God to do such things? Isn't God all-powerful? Isn't God filled with grace and love? Why would God act in such a terrible way against His only Son? We know the reason why this had to take place. As it says in Hebrews chapter 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Yes, God is all-powerful, but he is also holy and just. You see, God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. He would be like a judge who allowed a murderer to go free. Such a judge would be corrupt and evil, and God is not corrupt and evil. God must punish sin, and yet he is gracious in this way. And he found a way that sin might be punished through this one, his son on the cross. There was a unique religious practice that was in vogue in the British Isles up until about the beginning of the 20th century, that even came over to America and was practiced in certain parts of Appalachia. It was a practice, a ritual, known as the ritual of the sin eater. According to that ritual, one who was a reject in the community, quite often a beggar, spurned by everyone else in the town, would be called in critical time when a loved one was on their deathbed, and he'd be brought in to perform the ritual of the sin-eater, and according to that ritual, a bowl was to be filled with ale, and a piece of bread was to be placed on the chest of the one who was dying, and the sin-eater would speak the words and say the prayer, and it was thought that the sin of the dying individual would then be transferred to the bread and to what was in the bowl, And then the sin eater would himself consume both. It was thought that by doing so, he took that individual, that dying man's sin, into himself, thus freeing the man from sin and enabling him to enter into heaven when he died. But the result for the sin eater was that he was a condemned man, that he knew the punishment that awaited him upon his own death, having taken in the sins of so many in his community, that God certainly would not look favorably upon him. (coughs) Though there is no biblical basis for such a ritual in Scripture, we see this concerning Christ. God made him who did not know sin to become sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And in Isaiah 53, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. God, in a way, is describing a sin eater. One who is holy and perfect, yet becomes sin for us. One upon whom the punishment of sin is placed, though he doesn't deserve any of it. And this is why this one was forsaken by God on the cross. is because God viewed him As the greatest of all sinners, as he had absorbed into his body not only our sins but the sins of the entire world, God's wrath came upon him. Now we know that no sin eater could truly have power to take away someone's sin. In fact, the scripture even says in Psalm 49. No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. You see, it's impossible for anyone to pay the price for the sins of another, that they should be free from their guilt and from their sin. But this one who hung on the cross was different. He was no mere man. God himself and therefore the sacrifice that he gave there on the cross wasn't the sacrifice of a mere man but it was the sacrifice of God himself the one whose life has infinite value to truly pay for sin so that it could be said of him that he himself carried our sins in his body on the tree so that we would be dead to sins and alive to righteousness by his wounds you are healed In all of this we see that he was forsaken for you. He endured this most grievous punishment and suffering, not just the physical, not just the psychological, but even being forsaken by God. Enduring the punishment of hell itself for you and for me. That we might have life and peace. The incredible thing is that the suffering servant, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And even despite the fact that he knows that his God is always even going to give him over to death, yet he places his trust in him. He admits, you lay me in the dust of death, yet he is confident in his Savior God. He is confident that not, God will not abandon him forever. As he speaks also in Psalm 16, God will not abandon my life to the grave. He will not let his favored ones see decay. This God would do. And therefore, as he speaks in our psalm for this evening, we have reason to praise God. As he says, you who fear the Lord, praise him, all you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or detested the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but when he cried out to him, he heard. Quite amazing words. He has not despised or detested the affliction of the afflicted. And God would reveal this as well, that he would not spurn the suffering of Christ, but he would accept it. The Father, who would not abandon this one to the grave, nor let him see decay, And through that, we can be certain that the suffering that he carried out for us on the cross being forsaken by God was acceptable to the Father. Yes, this evening, we see that Christ was forsaken. We know why. It was for you, for me, for our sin. Thanks be to God that he sent his son Jesus Christ into the world for sinners like you and me, that we might have the full forgiveness of God that through his death we might have life. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore.